I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is obesity. Sheena Kennedy Helgenberger is the Live Well Omaha Grants Manager and Live Well Omaha Kids Director. Sheena drives the strategy, vision and implementation of Live Well Omaha Kids, the coalition to help more children live at a healthy weight. Sheena also leads the grant writing activities and cultivation of new funder relationships. In addition to her work at Live Well Omaha, Sheena is an active volunteer in the Omaha community. Sheena earned a Master of Arts in Educational Administration from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in 2010. Sheena lives with her husband in Elkhorn and they are excitedly expecting their first daughter in June. Sheena, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about Live Well Omaha. Yes, Live Well Omaha is a nonprofit that leads a coalition of organizations and our goal is to prioritize and improve health conditions in order to make the Omaha community a healthier place. That sounds really broad. Yes. And you managed to summarize that in such a short, <laughs> in such a short sort of statement. Um, so what are some of the things that you actually, uh, you actually do programmatically and, and, and otherwise? Um, one is incubating a project called Live Well Omaha Kids, which is where part of my role comes in. So we are looking at addressing and preventing childhood obesity and working with stakeholders and thought leaders around a way to combine all of the different programs that are going on and add some policy and advocacy to it. We have a lot of great programs that kind of work in silos. So we see ourselves as a connector to get those different entities to talk with each other, share lessons learned, apply for funding together, and see how we can stretch that impact or reach of the kids that we're helping. So that would be just one program under Level Omaha as okay. an example. So, so we definitely need to come back to that given the theme of, mm-hmm. of this week's show. But what are some of the other things that Live Well is doing? Yeah, Live Well Omaha also spends some time looking at active transportation and different modes of transportation. We have a coordinator that oversees something called the Commuter Challenge every year, which is getting people across Omaha to think about the ways that they're getting to and from different experiences and seeing if there's a way to incorporate more walking or carpooling or taking the bus or riding a bike. Um, So we're always working with partners like the city, um, MAPA, the um, transportation gurus around the city to make it easier for Omaha citizens to find different ways to travel. I have the impression from how you've described the activities that LiveWell is involved in that this idea of uh, connecting and and peer to peer best practices and and maybe um, you know coordinating and 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 stirring up some uh, connectivity between these organisations is really key for for what you do. What is that? Can can you give me an example um, and maybe just unpack that a little bit to just so we can understand what getting people to play together looks like. Mm-hmm. Maybe one example would be the community health needs assessment is an assessment where people across the community are surveyed on their experiences and they help identify the most pressing health needs. And so we have people around the table, the health department, the hospital systems, some insurance companies that review that data, that hear from doctors and teachers, et cetera. And they create sort of a list of maybe the top five health concerns. And one 
piece that we'd like to bring to the table that those partners agree are important is hearing again from the residents. So the residents do get to be surveyed, but only a small percentage. But how can we have them then review the data and really say, yes, this is impacting my life. Here are some ways we could take this data and do something about it. So I think our goal is to try and work with those neighborhood associations, other organizations that are really great at grassroots community work and help bring that voice of, you know, the person affected by obesity or the person living in poverty that wants to make healthy choices, but there are so many um, environmental, um, physical environment things keeping them from doing that. And just recently, we have really started to convene partners around this idea of an accountable health community is the term that we're using, which is bringing all those partners together to see past just healthy eating and physical activity to those things that really determine your health, um, your employment situation, your housing situation, your transportation options, your education level. Um, So it's sort of new in that we're now making that a major part of our business plan. If Omaha is an accountable health community, what are we being held accountable to? We're being accountable to finding the importance of health and how health is intertwined into all of the parts of our city. So not just at home, but at school, at work, outside in our parks. And as part of an accountable health community, the partners we have around the table, and we're growing that list of partners, we're going to create a shared policy platform because that's an area we haven't been able to dig too much into as a nonprofit is really focusing on policy and advocacy changes because we know if we can create policy and it can be local policy, big policy, that's going to positively affect more lives than just a program where we could only serve maybe 500 people. What is obesity? You know, what's a good sort of working definition of what that is? Yeah, so <laughs> obesity, I think, is an, a very complex health issue to address. I think a lot of people think about it as your diet and your physical activity, um, but it's also inactivity. It's also related to medications that you may use or the level of stress that you're experiencing. And it's also beyond just an individual choice to, you know, eat an orange or walk for 10 minutes outside. It's, again, do you live in a neighborhood where you feel like it's easy for you and your family to go walk around outside? Do you feel safe? Are your sidewalks intact? Do you have good lighting at your local park? Um, Do you have a job that allows you that time to be active at hours that are conducive? Um, So I think for me, as I've gotten more involved in this work, it's realizing that I think as a society, we've tried the solution of telling people the choices they need to make. You need to eat five servings of fruits and vegetables and drink water. But if it was that easy, obesity wouldn't be killing people. It wouldn't be contributing to other um, health issues like diabetes. So we need to look at that bigger picture. What kind of community have we set up for people? And are we setting them up to be able to access and make choices that fit in with their values and help them become healthier people? The report that um, a project of the Trust for America's Health and uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation 
it's titled The State of Obesity. And for the state of Nebraska, it, it says that adult obesity is at, um, in 2015, 31.4%. Mm-hmm. But I think what is disturbing is that over the last three decades, it's gone from around 11% in 1990, and then it went up to about 20-ish, uh, 25% in uh, the turn of the century, and now it's gone up to that figure of 31.4%. So clearly that's a trend line that's disturbing. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is for Douglas County, and you have some data for that, you said. Yes. Okay. So um, the survey I mentioned before, the Community Health Needs Assessment, is done, um, and we have a survey that's adults are surveyed based on their perceptions, and then we also have a separate survey where parents of children are surveyed about child and adolescent health. So with adult obesity, we know that in Douglas County, 29.4% of adults are obese. But if you combine overweight and obese into a category, that's 66% of Douglas County adults, which I think is a serious number. Um, And then when you look at children, about one in four youth in Douglas County are overweight or obese. So what are the implications of obesity for the individual mm-hmm. and what are the implications of obesity for um, for society and, and for a healthy community? Yeah, well, obesity is associated with some of the leading causes of death, um, diabetes, heart disease, stroke, um, types of cancer. Um, but even beyond that, there are mental health challenges associated with struggling with being overweight or obese a reduced quality of life as you encounter some of those social and psychological issues in addition to the health concerns that you're at risk for. Um, And I would say as a child, they've found connections between reduced academic performance, you know, a likelihood of then leading a shorter or living a shorter life, and then encountering, sorry, encountering some of those leading causes of death earlier life as well. So you you indicated that obesity may have a medical definition, but perhaps a broader perspective is more helpful and healthy. You'd suggested that just telling people what to do, uh, just saying this is a healthy lifestyle, go do it, has clearly proven to be ineffective as a tactic. So what are helpful approaches to addressing some of these uh, challenges around obesity? Yeah, so I think there are some good solutions out there and best practices that people in the community are already doing. Um, And I think the key, again, is lifting those up and finding connections between things that are going on separately that could be combined to impact more people. So some of those are really paying attention to access for people to safe sidewalks and trails and parks and overall infrastructure Um, helping with establishing safe routes to healthy places. So do kids that live in a neighborhood with a school have a safe way of getting there um, as far as traffic and, like I said, sidewalks, things like that? Or do they have the ability to safely get to the grocery store? Also looking at shared community spaces. So if there's you know, a building that could be used for recreation and physical activity along with other uses making that available. Um, Affordable transportation. So for those that 
can't afford a car or, you know, can't drive easily from point A to point B, are there bus routes? Are there walking routes um, around? Also looking at the local stores, are there affordable, healthy options? Because, you know, you may find for some, there's really only a gas station nearby and it covers a wide range of maybe alcohol and candy, but you can't get bananas there. You can't get whole grain um, bread or skim milk if that's you know something that you'd like to choose. And then overall, going back to that policy piece, how can we promote healthy food and eating to places like early child care facilities, hospitals, schools, businesses are working with even restaurants to provide healthy options. And then overall, I think making it a priority to bring all the places that people might congregate or gather in a neighborhood and community together to talk about health and identify ways to align and collaborate. You know, it it strikes me that what you've been saying in many respects is there has been a tendency to hold accountable the individual, Mm -hmm. while at the same time we have, up until now, been ignoring the more pernicious factor, which is that our lived experience is designed in ways that make us unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Infrastructure, transportation, public parks, the nature of the food distribution and and retail and and some of the medications and um, you know, overuse of antibiotics in the uh, food industry, so on and so forth. So we may be accountable, true, for ourselves, but we are surrounded in our daily lives by circumstances that make being healthy extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would agree with that. We should always educate individuals on good choices to make, but realize that there is a bigger picture out there. You know, I think even back to my childhood, like food marketing, and I think it's gotten even more pervasive but, you know, you watch TV and you see cartoon characters and they're promoting, a, you know, a sugary snack. And so then you tell your parent that's what you want them to buy or you refuse to eat things that aren't shown um, or normalized in your area. So fruits, certain fruits or vegetables you may refuse to eat. Um, we lived in, you know, affordable apartment housing growing up and I ate a lot of macaroni and cheese and chicken nuggets And I think for my mom, that was the best that she could do with what she had, you know, being a single mom, working full-time retail hours. Um, So I always think back to that and how we have to, you know, there are some people that it's very easy for them to go shop and buy healthy foods and it doesn't break their budget or they don't have any misperceptions about that. But for the situation I grew up on, we maybe didn't know better and we had a tight budget. We also had a tight time frame for my mom to feed us. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Yesterday I kissed you and told you that I was through. But today I'm with you. Ain't that some love? Tomorrow you might hate me and find you somebody new. But today I'm with you. Ain't that some love?
You are listening to Lives. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Sheena Kennedy-Helgenberger, the Live Well Omaha Grants Manager and Live Well Omaha Kids Director. On the one hand, we have a society that... um, We have a community infrastructure that doesn't help people be healthy. We want to hold people accountable for their own health. And we also uh, are fully aware of the detriments to us of unhealthy environments and, and being unhealthy. But then the danger of pointing this out feeds into a culture of fat shaming mm-hmm. and maybe then um, encourages or uh, amplifies other unhealthy practices like anorexia or, or, or bulimia or, or just generally self-esteem issues. How do we tackle an issue like obesity while at the same time acknowledging that there are many, many people that for, for whom that is their condition and we don't want to be pointing fingers at people and just saying somehow you're wrong and you are other yeah that's a really great question um and i don't know the perfect answer to that but i think you know if you anytime that we can get people together real community members or real residents and say we just want to learn about your experience how could we help you be healthier and kind of making it open-ended? Then I think we'll start to hear, I would guess, some of those um, issues being things like that I've mentioned before. Like we don't feel safe going outside and playing at the park or no one will fix the streetlight that's been broken. Um, or I would love to make a really healthy meal for my children, but I work the second and third shift. And I'm, you know, so I leave them macaroni and cheese so that they could make it easily on their own. Um, So I think just really learning about their day-to-day experiences and then figuring out we have all these great resources in our community. How can some of those experts then provide and co-create solutions based on what those people are telling us? So it's not yeah pointing the finger and saying you're a bad parent or a bad person because your child is overweight. Um, We want to help. So tell us more about what you're experiencing day-to-day. So you have the Live Well Kids Coalition, and um, what are perhaps some of the typical objections that you hear, or perhaps you hear, um, you know, one step removed uh, to the program you're trying to create? I would say an objection, and I haven't heard this from anyone that we've invited to come to the table and work with us, but, you know, people saying that's the parent's responsibility. We don't need to you know, get all of these other entities together to address this issue. You know, it's up to the parent or the child to make better decisions. And again, it goes back to the need to educate and talk about how it's not that simple. So I think that's probably the number one objection I hear, maybe just from the average person on the street that doesn't think about health in the same way. Um, that is really just about that individual or uh, up to the home to decide. I'd like to hear a little bit about your upbringing. Um, I grew up in Bellevue, Nebraska. Um, my mom and I did live sort of all over Omaha and Council Bluffs and Bellevue growing up, different apartment complexes. My mom's always worked two to three jobs um, just to provide for her and I. Um And I think I was lucky that she was able to get me really involved in sort of extracurricular activities. So I always had a good sense of community and um, friendships and advocates around me. And I also really invested in taking school seriously. My mom didn't end up making it through high school. She had to drop out. And my grandma only went through middle school. 
So I was always encouraged to take school very seriously and just kind of kept going first to graduate from college. And I think along the way, um, just learning about their experiences and how it differed from mine, I became really involved in volunteer work. So just different ways to give back. And that's also been a big part of what I do now as an adult. And that got me into the nonprofit world. You are, I understand, interested in social justice issues, and you've talked a little bit about um, the policy aspects of the work that you do. What is it that calls you to social justice as an issue that is of importance to your values? Well, I think for me, realizing the more I become just self-aware or aware of... um, the differences in community, depending on where you live within your town, knowing that there are health inequities that exist. So there are differences in health experiences that I think are unfair and unjust and avoidable. And seeing how we can bring attention to that um, and ask people to come to the table and advocate for not just themselves, um, but also bringing everyone else along with them. Um, I think it's, I don't, I'm not sure when I decided that I cared about that, but it's just been something that's always been a part of my upbringing. Uh, Maybe just experiencing some of that myself when we were younger and my mom was using, you know, food assistance and housing assistance and things like that. Um, And a lot of the opportunities I was able to experience because she worked so hard. I don't want to forget that, and I want to honor that it's not easy for everyone here. I don't think when I was being raised uh, by my mom uh, with my sister that I was ever really aware that, frankly, we were poor and mm-hmm. living in the British equivalent of Section 8 housing and so on and so forth. Um, just didn't really register with me. But somewhere along the line, and I, too, can't necessarily place it at a particular point or incident, but that, that idea of being driven by fairness uh, emerged somewhere. But you did mention something earlier. You talked about remembering, I think, mac and, mac and cheese, like dinner yeah. mac and cheese or something. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if, with a little thought, you are able to like look back at an incident or maybe some element of shaming or otherwise mm-hmm. that made you think, no, this, this clearly is wrong and, and it informed you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say probably elementary school when you start having like play dates after school um, and going to some houses that are just these beautiful mansions and, um, you know, parents that have a lot of time and can come to their daughter's soccer games. And my mom was always working and so I'd have to carpool. And and at some point kind of being embarrassed about my house because it looked so different and it, you know, there was paint falling off the outside and my stepdad, um, you know, was a laborer and he drove a rusted truck. And yeah, at some point just realizing those differences and feeling bad about it. And I don't know that anyone ever said anything to me. I just started to feel embarrassed. What does motivate you to be doing the work that you're doing? Uh, I think specifically with looking at kids' health issues, I am motivated by the fact that We can't expect children to go to school and learn well if they are coming to school hungry 
or they haven't had, you know, something really enriching and fulfilling to eat that then helps them be alert and ready to take on the day. And uh, I think about that even with some of the volunteer work I do with youth now. Um, For example, them telling me about their house smelling funny and they have bad asthma so they don't sleep well at night. Just all those things that then attribute to when they show up to school, they're they're not really ready to learn. Some of their basic needs haven't been met. And how that then puts them on this track where they're falling behind and they just won't have as many experiences as a child that comes with all of those needs met. When I was in grad school, we that sort of led me to volunteer for Girl Scouts and then work for them. That's when we first learned the idea of, really for me, about privilege and identity and how that all affects um your experience in life. And then I got involved as a Girl Scout volunteer with their detention center group um, and then later worked for them. Um, But I think all of those things, my mind just started opening and I just started questioning things that I had maybe not thought too deeply about before. How are you able to look after your own healthy lifestyle? Yeah, um, I'm very fortunate that I have a job that allows me to get up and take walk breaks um, that encourages that. I also live in a neighborhood that um, I feel very safe going for walks, so I do that a lot. Um, I also have the privilege of having a job that pays me a good wage so that I can balance my love of um, ice cream and treats with, you know, organic fruits and vegetables from time to time or, you know, good quality meats and things like that. Um, So for me, I think it's recognizing that privilege that comes with it and the options that I do have. And I want to make that more accessible for everyone. In in light of the work that you're doing and your aspirations for an accountable, healthy community, is there finally a, a message or an observation or even a call to action that you'd like to leave us with? Hmm. <laughs> My call to action would be that everyone has a place at the table when it comes to creating um, a healthy environment for the Omaha community, and that can be done through a lot of different ways, such as advocacy or education, but it's also about policy and overall environmental change. And so no matter who you are, we're open to hearing from you and having you be a part of our shared plan. I've been in conversation today with Sheena Kennedy Helgenberger, the Live Well Omaha Grants Manager and Live Well Omaha Kids Director. Sheena, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for letting me come speak with you. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break.
Back to lives. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Dialogue, that part of the show when I speak to guests about our theme, which this week is obesity. With me in Dialogue are Andrea Hoig and Connor Wrench. In 2015, Connor Wrench was featured on the cover of People magazine for losing half of her body weight. Bullied by classmates and peers for her appearance and unhealthy weight, by age six, Connor started battling with acceptance, self-image, and self-love. Finding comfort in food, Connor regularly overate and continued gaining weight until by age 19, she weighed 271 pounds. A combination of exercise, nutrition and determination led to Connor losing 130 pounds. Her mission now is to be a positive role model, not only for weight loss, but also for learning to love oneself from the inside out. Connor speaks to motivational issues on health and wellness and has started a website called MyButterflyJourney.com and is writing a book on mastering your mindset. Andrea Hoy graduated from the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha in 1996 with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. Andrea focused her education around psychiatric nursing, working for five years at the University of Nebraska Medical Center's Eating Disorders Program, which included an all-ages inpatient, partial hospital, and outpatient program to address issues related to anorexia and bulimia. Andrea has also worked at an eating disorders program at Children's Hospital in Omaha until 2008. In both cases, these programs closed due to budget constraints. Andrea now works as a psychiatric nurse at CHI Lasting Hope Recovery Center in Omaha. Uh, thanks, Connor. Thanks, Andrea, for being here. Thank Hi, you. Stuart. <laughs> So my first question relates to our culture. And as a culture, we seem to have norms and standards for what is attractive and what is unattractive, especially around weight. And we make assumptions about people accordingly. And I wonder what your perspectives are on these cultural attitudes around, you know, beautiful and ugly. You see, I think, two conflicting um, messages of this love your body, love yourself, love, you know, which I love. And then you have the beauty standard, which is the models that are are very, very thin and, you know, all these things. And I think... I think our society is moving in the right direction. I think we're getting to the point where we realize that not every body is the same and not every, just because it's different doesn't mean it's not beautiful, but I think we still have a very, very long way to go (laughs) in that. I would have to agree. I mean, I think we have come a long way. We've come a long way since the 90s. Um, uh, There's a lot more openness to various types of sexuality, which I think opens us up to different types of bodies. Um, But I think we still have a long way to go. Uh, I think even, um, I was thinking of recent kind of fat shaming of a Kim Kardashian or a Venus Williams, I mean, whose bodies maybe would not have been accepted at all. 20 years ago, they're still outliers. They're still not the norm. And they still get shamed if they wear things that are maybe too revealing. So there is still a, you're okay, you know, we um, we can accept that your body is different and that it's still beautiful to certain limits. I'm wondering, what do you predict the future to look like in terms of the norms that we start to say? Um, or maybe we eradicate norms. I don't know. Maybe norms go away. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you what do you think the future might look like? I think we are getting towards a fitness society of where it's 
it's beautiful to be fit and healthy and live that kind of lifestyle as opposed to being skinny equaling a healthy lifestyle. Um, I think people are a lot more aware of what's in food and what's going into food and that kind of thing. And I think that in terms of that, the body image will change because I think people will start to be like, wow, I need to exercise because I want to live longer. I want to put healthy foods into my body because I want to live longer. And because of that, I think the image will kind of veer towards almost a more, in my opinion, a more athletic look of person. I think that's true too, because I think that's really the only way to go that's healthy. I think any kind of restricting of food, any kind of trying to um, minimize the food that we nourish ourselves with kind of creates an automatic um, sense of deprivation. So moving towards health by fitness, um, by doing it in order to care for ourselves instead of in order to deprive ourselves will lead to a a healthier look. It's probably going to be polarizing, you know, for the people who are like, I just don't like to work out. You know what I mean? So it's going to be that. And then there's going to be the fitness industry that's, you know, built with people that are work out seven days a week, two hours a day and, and are like, well, why, what's wrong with you? You know, I think it's, I think that's kind of going to be the new issues of like, I just want to be healthy and this is healthy versus this is healthy. And I think we continue to be an instant gratification society and we, we, that's just part of who we are. We still have um, such access to immense amounts of food everywhere we turn. And um, fitness isn't quite as accessible for a lot of people. Um, Walking is something that we can all do, but having a great fitness program for kids to be able to access when they're young that isn't just for half an hour every day at school or on the odd days or whatever, we have a ways to go to make it more accessible and to help people understand why exercising and being fit is part of our, not only our physical health, our mental health. A lot of how we learn about the world around us starts young. So, so let me start with you, Connor, and ask mm-hmm. um, for you just to tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. your upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up, I'm one of five kids, and I think I grew up in a family because I was the only one that was overweight in my family. Um, but I remember my mom being, uh, when I was young, being on a diet always. She was always on a diet, always talked about being on a diet. And then she fed us kids kind of in mass quantities because there's five of us, and I don't blame her. She did the best she knew how. So she would build, put big casseroles out and do those things. And so I grew up in a family where, you know, my mom just kind of thought that we'll self moderate, you know, and that's just not how my personality is. I'm more the better and very, you know, that's always how I've been. And so I, I use that personality towards food and I, I overate, you know, my mom would say, you just had such an appetite when you were little. I didn't want to tell you no, because you were little and growing. And, and then my mom's like, I didn't never knew when it was like the, an issue. So at, at your highest mm-hmm. weight, mm-hmm. um, it was 271 pounds, mm-hmm. I think, at age 19. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about th- that journey from, I think, age six mm-hmm. when you first were becoming, I think, really aware of, mm-hmm. of your appearance and how people were responding to that good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that journey towards that point. So, you know, when I was young, like I said, it was just kind of I loved to eat. But then as time went on, it was kids bully kids that are, are overweight and that kind of thing. And I turned to food for comfort and I tried to lose weight and I would go to my mom crying and 
you know, saying, what can I do? Like we actually did a uh, children's hospital program at one point we did wait. She helped me do Weight Watchers at one point. And it was all because I wanted to, it was all, my mom was just like, whatever you want to try, like we'll try. She was so good about it. She never made me feel bad about it, but you know, the weight kind of kept packing on. So then by eighth grade going to high school, I kind of quit sports because at that point it becomes very competitive to quit to play sports. And so I quit sports and that's when I kind of really packed on the pounds because my mom kept me as active as she could. And then when I quit that and and I got involved in other things, but it was kind of snowballed because then I was used to eating a lot and kind of working out. And then the depression kind of set in in high school and the self-loathing kind of set in in high school. And it was just this snowball of how do I get my life on track? You know, and I didn't know how because I was 14, 15, 16. I think you learn so much about yourself in those years, but you also lose a lot of who you are in those years. So yeah, when I was 19, I came back from my freshman year of college and I just knew I had to change. Otherwise I was headed down a path that I didn't want to be on (laughs) anymore. So I I want to ask you, Andrea, just about the relationship of of food with your family and and your culture. And it's interesting because my relationship with food uh, really started, oh, and I guess it started even when I was younger, but it really changed when I was six because my mom died when I was six. And so when I lost that, um, it was felt very tragic, very traumatic to me, um, as it would to anyone. But my comfort was my food, you know, and I felt fed myself as, and I've thought of myself a lot of times that I don't want to condemn myself for being a bad mother to myself because I really was, I was feeding myself as if I was, I mean, I had my dad and he was, uh, very loving, but he wasn't my mother. And sometimes when I look back, I see myself feeding me myself to help me get to sleep at night, feeding myself at meals to help me feel better. It's our first drug. It's our first way that we comfort ourselves. I wasn't making the best decisions for myself, but I was loving myself. I was not trying to hurt myself. But the weight packed on because mm-hmm. I had no limits. I was, I just wanted to feel better and food was my comfort. And so um, it led for me in my life um, to that place of self-loathing. I just, I thought of that just right when you said it, of that place that you get to self-loathing when you really feel like you're your own demise. You're trying so hard to figure out how to navigate this very difficult road as we become a, uh, go from being a child into an adult and we're trying to figure it out. And if you're feeding yourself in order to make yourself feel better, but you're, the result is that you're just getting bigger and bigger and you're dealing with more rejection, then it can lead to a place of real misery, um, real desperate, um, a kind of feeling of despair. And in my life, it led to, it led to um, bulimia. And I, I really struggled with bulimia for many years of my adolescence um, that I didn't talk about. I didn't get help for. I was not open to anybody helping me fix it. I was, um, it was my way of trying to interrupt this cycle that I was on of trying to get rid of, um, the food that I was eating so that it wouldn't end up on my body. And it's a real miserable, uh, place to be. And so I kind of had to help myself kind of self therapy my way out of that. And I did. And, um, it it was a long, long transition. And when I, my mom was a psychiatric nurse, I became a psychiatric nurse. And when I started my first, um, eating my first job in eating disorders, I really thought now I'm going to figure out how other people fix it. 
And I really didn't. I really found out that it wasn't in the eating disorders program that they were fixing. It was really changing your relationship with yourself and the world that you're living in. And that's all you can do. So that's, I think that's really interesting. And I, then why don't I ask you, Connor, mm -hmm. you talk a lot about uh, self-love mm -hmm. uh, and, and you've both talked about mm -hmm. self-loathing mm -hmm. as part of this um, experience. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about self-love then. Mm -hmm. And, and, Perhaps you could explain what that means to you and you talk mm. about inner dialogue and, and perhaps just give give some clarity around what that means from your perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, I think through like, you know, May 14th of 2008 was that turning point that you talk about, that, that aha moment. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, all these people are bullying me and I had gone to college and people, when you're that overweight, people completely ignore you. They see right through you. It's It's really really even hard to describe unless you've been there because it is like you're a wall and nobody wants to pay attention to you. And, and I realized through kind of all of that bullying and all of that, all of that behavior was that I was my biggest bully. I would go home and be like, ugh, why can't you do this? You're so gross. You're so this, you're so that. And I knew in that moment that if I was going to change anything that I had to change the way I spoke to myself and I was like, well, why can't you do this? You can do this. Like, you can do this for yourself. What do you want out of life? Do you want a family? Do you want a future? Do you want a life that doesn't revolve around an object, you know, food? And, you know, or do you want some, do you want happiness in that way? And, and I think when you make that switch of what do you, what do you want? I want to be happy. Okay. Well, how are you going to get there? Well, by treating myself the way I deserve to be treated because I'm a good person and I'm, you know, loving and I, I help people and, you know, like all the things that I have always done, but never really gave myself credit for, I guess you could say, you know? And so then when I did that, and started to say, okay, like get up in the morning, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. Then like one day in two days and you know, it's now I'm here, you know, it's one day at a time of just training yourself to believe in yourself. And then once like things start happening, it's not just weight because people are always like, oh, you've lost so much weight. Like, tell me what you ate. Tell me why you worked out. And I said, let's right. talk about other things because I can tell you exactly what I eat and exactly how I work out. But at the end of the day, you know, when you're alone, what do you do? You know, are, are you, are you happy or are you sad? And that, I mean, that really is, is it because you watch shows like the biggest loser, you watch shows, they always address the physical, but, and yeah, and they make them cry every once in a while, but they never address why they gained that weight in the first place. There's always a reason. And so unless you change that and unless you address that, the weight will always come back on. Weight is a byproduct of happiness or, or self-loathing. That's it. It's, that's right. It's never the physical ever. That's <laughs> I mean, so <laughs> true. Yeah. Well, I had a real, it was a very eye-opening experience when I worked in eating disorders, huge team of people that were getting together to try to help from a five-year-old to an 80-year-old that we treated, um, change their view of themselves. And that really is almost an impossible task because if your sense of your place in the world is that you are you know, I'm a fat pig goes to the center of your being. That affects every relationship that you have, including your relationship with food. Um, like you said, it always comes from someplace of your um, kind of your inner self, your what whatever happened that changed your view of yourself in the world. Um, cannot be changed by now we're going to do cognitive behavioral therapy and we're going to sit with your meals and we would um, with patients 
eat every meal with them and they would have to eat everything on their plate and drink every sip of their milk. And if they didn't, they got it replaced with Ensure and little medicine cups. And uh, we could pack the weight on all day long. We could make kids that had lost, you know, that were 78 pounds get through the program after months and thousands or maybe a hundred thousand dollars or, and be at a healthy weight and they'd walk right out of there and lose it faster than we could even get ready for them to come back in the program. And I saw people cycle through the program over and over again. And I really realized it's not about the food they're eating. It's not about um, trying somehow to limit their exercise or limit their purging behaviors. Um, we could lock bathroom doors and people would be vomiting in plants. Um, we could hear people, you know, running in place in the bathrooms. I mean, it, there, there's really nothing you can do until a person starts caring for themselves. And so I, it was kind of demoralizing. There was a long time where I felt like, why are these families taking second mortgages on their homes just to put weight on this child when it's going to come right back off until this child is ready to deal with what's really maybe broken? And a lot of times there was trauma in their um, early childhood that they couldn't deal with. And, and it, it wasn't something they were ready to deal with. And maybe sometimes it wasn't until they were really becoming their own person, 18, 19, 20 years old, that they kind of went, Oh, God, I don't want to look at my face in the toilet again. I don't want to wake up with my heart beating fast every night of my life because, I, you know, I'd like to have a period again someday so I could have a child. You know, there was coming to their own epiphany mm -hmm. that would cause them to change and start to care for themselves. And if that didn't happen, there really was no amount that we could throw at them of knowledge, you know, to help them figure this out. It's all about how you feel about yourself. How do you take that first step in the face of such antagonism externally mm -hmm. and this almost impossible burden of, of self-care? Mm -hmm. I think you really, you, you have to learn how to turn everyone out, off, like everyone, you know, because I realized every time I lost, tried to lose weight in the past, it was always like, oh, I'm going to prove so-and-so wrong, or I'm going to, you know, make my dad happy, or I'm going to, you know, do these things. And I was like, no, 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 like everyone else has to go away. You have to be selfish for a minute and go, I need to do this for me, for me. And it's, it, and I am not that kind of person. I always want to do everything for everyone else. I don't, you know, I don't want any attention on me. I, I still am that way to an extent in a lot of ways, but I, I realized you have to be selfish right now. Like do what is best for you and, and you're not hurting anyone and you're making yourself happy. And so, you know, just take a sec second and tune everyone out. And, you know, until you're ready to take that step, like she said, like, there's no, there's no one that's going to convince you to do it. No one. Right. I, you know, I, I always wondered, I, I love that you're here because I've always wondered that side of it because I've, I've only known the obesity side of it, but the anorexia, the bulimia side of it, but it's the same issue. You it know, really it, it's the it's same, very much, you yeah. know, it's control, right? Yeah. It's, it, right. and it's, right. and your, your world is out of control. And so you like, you're feeling like my food was my comfort, but theirs is their control in their food was their comfort. Yes. You know, it's, it's very interesting to, to hear that, but, uh, but yeah, you just got to tune out everything and everyone and just focus on you, I think is the first step, but I don't, I don't And know. including yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really think you have to tune out, like you said, challenging those negative voices that are in you, telling you and reinforcing all the time that, you know, how could you do this? How could you have eaten that? What's wrong with you? That kind of has to stop. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I've 
said to many patients, you don't have to have that thought. You think you do because you have it every day, but you can challenge that thought and you can say, that's enough. I've had it. I'm not going to deal. I'm not going to let you, me, treat mm -hmm. myself this way anymore. I'm going to start to think in a way that's more caring. And if you don't, I don't think it's going to work. So tell us about that journey then, Connor. I think it was identifying what my triggers were in terms of what did I turn to food to for, you know? And I think the biggest trigger, and I think this for most people now that I've shared my journey and people have shared their journeys with me, is that feeling of loneliness and emptiness. A lot of times it's the people we surround ourselves with that make us feel lonely and empty. And it's identifying like what makes you happy and especially what doesn't make you happy and trying to eliminate that negativity out of your life. And so as I lost weight, I was like, you know, that doesn't make me happy. Like, why am I doing that? Why? Like, as I lost weight, I decided not to go back to college. I was like, you know what? College does not make me happy. And I'm not saying that college is not a great thing for people, but I'm like, I need to find my career path that's going to make me happy. And I, and instead of going back to college, I went to cosmetology school in LA and now I do hair and I love it. And I, and it's, it's doing what makes me happy on a daily basis. That is the real secret. And that's how I've kept it off because now I do not invite negativity in my life. If there are negative people around me, sorry, you're not welcome. You know, like you're just not welcome. And, and I tend to be that that blunt about it really. And, and people are like, how do you deal with negative, you know, people now? I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I don't deal with negative people now. They, if they have something negative to say about me, that's on them. That's, you know, or, or they feel. And, and, um, I think my whole life has prepared me for what I'm doing now and, and being kind of in the public eye because the negativity part of it, I, I just don't have time. I don't have time because I'm too busy being happy, you know? And I, I think that was the biggest change for me. That's so fantastic. I love to hear that. That's wonderful. <laughs> what advice would you give to your younger self? Care for yourself. You know, care for yourself. Um, nobody else is going to do it for you. And, and um, I don't know that there's much more to say to my younger self than that because I really wasn't caring for myself for so long. And if I had been... I think it, my growing up could have been a lot less difficult. <laughs> you know, it was very challenging. Um, I would say just be kind to yourself. Forgive yourself. Forgive others. You know, that nobody's perfect, including, you know, yourself and so myself. And so just to be, just to be a lot easier on yourself. I was so hard on myself and, I, you know, I, it was that self-loathing that it really was the, the worst part of, my life and you know but I would never take back anything in my life ever because it's made me who I am it's made me really strong I, I don't know who I would be had I not gone through the struggles and the trials that I've been through but it was just I was I was not nice to myself and and to to just be kind you know I was nice to others I was I was nice to others but yeah I would say just be kind and what advice would you give to those people that are close or around people that are having some of these difficulties we've been talking about, whether it's maybe a family member or friends, what should those people know or what message would you give them to help support these people? Just try to be a positive force in their life. Um, give them your positive energy. Offer them whatever... Um, kindness, support you can. 
Um, nobody needs a reminder that they're overweight. Everybody knows. Nobody even needs exercise or food advice. Mm -hmm. I really don't think it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. Um, what people need is loving support and, um, unconditional acceptance. That's not too much to ask. I don't think, um, accepting people for who they are and enjoying people and enjoying yourself. Um, a lot of people that are around someone that is struggling with their weight issue don't have any qualms about calling themselves negative names or talking about themselves and like, Oh no, I don't mean you. I just mean me. It's like practice it yourself. It will exude from you as you obviously do. I'm sure and influence the people around you when you feel really good about yourself mm -hmm. at any way. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with everything you said. It's, it's, I think the biggest thing I could say is never point it out to someone because they already know. Like you don't need to ever say, should you really be eating that? Or is right. that part of your diet that you're on that you've been talking about? Because they know. They, they're not dumb. They're very intelligent. But really just being there as a sounding board, as love and support, as, you know, all those things are so important because it's it, it, we lack – it, it, the reason people gain weight is because they la they feel lonely and and to just know you're not alone you're not alone I've um it, it's a good feeling to know you have someone to call you have someone to not judge you you know that is just there for you because they love you exactly who you are and I find though weight makes people uncomfortable it it just does we we're humans and and so to find someone that knows you really, really well. I think I'm talking to the person that's overweight, like knows you and knows who you are. And cause you know, my mom knew me and, and so it was one of those things where she never made me feel like I was bad for being different. She always encouraged all the, all the things that she loved about me. And, and to that's, I think that's why I'm very outgoing and all these things now is cause she always encouraged me to do things like that. And so just to be that love and support and point out the great qualities in them, not in a condescending way, but just in a, Oh my gosh, I love that you do this. Cause a lot of times people that are overweight never hear that from other people because the people are too focused on their weight that they're like, Oh my gosh, you're so good at this. or you're so good at that. Everyone loves to hear a compliment, you know, so being conscious of that too, I think is always helpful. I've been in dialogue with Andrea Hoig and Connor Wrench. Thank you both so much for joining me in conversation. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.